Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to the latest episode of the Ball and Chain Podcast, episode 38 to be precise. I am not coming to you from Southern California. I am coming to you from beautiful, gorgeous, and the latest uh, and the newest tech hub, Miami, uh, and uh, working here for a couple of days this week. Uh, excited to be uh, down here where it really looks and feels like San Francisco did back in the heydays of uh, the tech boom. So excited to be here. Along those lines, I am in a typical WeWork conference room with a lot of glass. And so my acoustics may not be that great. Uh, my apologies if the sound quality is a little subpar today, but um, in a world where people are kind of working wherever they're working, uh, hopefully everyone is very patient and understanding on that. Uh, but yes, uh, so everything is uh, everything is going well since our last episode last week uh, with Robert Kraft. Hopefully you have a chance to check out that episode. Uh, really excited for football season, obviously starting in a couple of days here. Uh, by the time you get this, it'll actually be the next day. Uh, so this Thursday and my Packers are all set to play uh, in Jacksonville against uh, the Saints on Sunday. I will actually be in Chicago for a conference then. So uh, hopefully all the uh, Bears fans uh, don't have a problem with me wearing my Devontae Adams jersey. Uh, <laughs> and then we're entering the home stretch, of course, of baseball. Looking forward to wrapping this up and getting to the playoffs here uh, in short order. And heck, the NBA and NHL are starting to next month. So we got a lot going on. Uh, so with, uh, with that out of the way, uh, today's guest, I'm excited to have on uh, the podcast. Uh, he is one of our uh, attorneys and legal counsel that we use. Uh, just a really awesome, amazing guy. Uh, gonna be very insightful here to talk about all sorts of legal, crypto, uh, and other matters. Uh, welcome to the podcast from Bailey and Glasser Law Firm, uh, Carlos Duque. How are you today? I'm wonderful, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Can't wait to... Uh to get into the nitty gritty of legal and, and compliance and DFS, esports, crypto, whatever you want to talk about. I'm just so delighted yeah. um, to, to get this podcast going. And you are calling from the complete opposite end of the country. You're in Hawaii. So what time is it in Hawaii now? Uh, it is noon. It is no, uh, you are six hours behind me right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm used to, I get up at five, uh, six in the morning every day to keep up more or less yeah. uh, East Coast time as best I can, but it's so worth it to live in paradise. No, no question about it. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. So how did, cause I think you were on the East Coast at one time um, and then you, uh, you know, during the pandemic moved to Hawaii. Uh, so what kind of prompted you to go there? And I know you're big into surfing. would love to hear also a little bit about that too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I was living in Boston. I, I went to law school, Boston University, and I've been in Boston for about 10, 12 years at the time the pandemic hit. Uh, this, this beautiful story started in a dive bar uh, down the street from my office on Federal Street in Boston. Um, I, I met and fell in love with a uh, flight attendant for Hawaiian Airlines while she was on a turn in, in Boston. And we went out for a few drinks. And the next morning, she took off back to Hawaii. And I wrote her five poems a day for a month until she eventually reciprocated. And uh, when, <laughs> when she eventually did, we did long distance for a few months. Then the COVID hit. They said, work from home. I said, aloha, I will. Thank you very much. And I booked a one-way to Hawaii. And I haven't been back since. Uh, it's been um, absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, the weather is stunning. I got, I lost 30 pounds when I came here just from getting up in the morning, going for a run, surfing three days a week, uh, which is just incredibly uh, wonderful for physical and mental health. 
and my ability and productivity uh, have gone up tremendously in my view because I'm so kind of relaxed and in a positive, healthy, happy headspace that I can tolerate all sorts of work-related stress with, with grace and ease. So I would really encourage anyone who's thinking about it to, to make a jump while the pandemic is still raging and you still and you have total freedom uh, of location, you know, now that we're all totally, uh, where geographic location is totally irrelevant, I really hope we can all make the most of it and we take care of ourselves because I know it can be very stressful to be cooped up in a downtown one bedroom, you know, during uh, X number of waves of lockdown. It can really get old. So please don't hesitate to take care of yourself and your mental health. Well, it's funny you say that. I'll use that as a springboard here to kind of make the informal announcement. I'm going to be moving to uh, Miami actually in the next couple of months. I will be opening up a small office here and couldn't agree with you more. Um, I left San Francisco uh, about 10 months ago and Southern California was great. I don't think it's quite the tech ecosystem that you know I would like to be in. But of course, we're going to keep our office there because we have a few team members that are there. We're going to open one up in here in Miami for those that want to be here. Um, and then we're going to have one in Vegas because we're actually required to uh, have a Nevada office and location for those that want to be there. And so what I think is kind of cool is, you know, um, maybe, you know, two years ago, you would have had a huge, huge office in just one location. Now you can kind of really, you know, take advantage of like products like WeWork and have like micro little locations, you know, so wherever anyone wants to be. And plus, I know WeWork has the uh, work from anywhere um, situation where you can basically go and reserve a hot desk at any location. So for those that we have in other locations, uh, like the Bay Area or Colorado or Toronto or whatever it might be, um, if they can't be or don't want to be at one of our uh, more formal hubs, they can um, just you know pop in a couple times a week into uh, a hot desk location and work from there. Um, and so couldn't agree with you more. Like you know, live where you want to live first and um, enjoy where you want to be because um, you'll be much more productive if you are. Uh, you'll be much happier and mentally, you know, happier and all that good stuff. So, yeah, I think that um, that's just absolutely fantastic uh, life and work and career advice. Um, and uh, hey, you know, I mean, we're uh, we're out to make we're out to not just educate people uh, in the world of gaming or betting or crypto. We're out there to uh, help them live better lives. So I'm glad we were able to I'm glad we were able to deliver this message today because it, it actually is a really important one. Yeah, and it even, I'd, I'd even take it maybe one small step further and say that I love the flexibility because I feel like I can really be there for my clients even more so without having the expectation that I'm locked into one, you know, physical location. Um, you know, for example, with, with you and Zen Sports, Mark, I know occasionally you have an all, you know, all hands on deck where you invite your whole team to descend on Southern California, or maybe next year it'll be Florida. Well, I love nothing more than just you know, as you know, I've joined that from time to time, and I love nothing more than just going without any really good excuse and just parking my butt in your office for a week. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. I'd be like, how can I really take care? You know, that's what I love, like Zen Sports as an example. Like, I just love being there and meeting the whole team and seeing the team dynamics and knowing what everyone's up to, regardless of whether I'm working on their stuff or not. Because, you know, how can I really take care of you if I don't know, kind of, if I don't have a 360 degree view of every aspect of your business and, and being untethered from any particular full-time location, I can just, you know, pack up my laptop in my backpack and go to LA for a week. 
And that is just one of the great joys of, of doing business in the 21st century. Right. So let me ask a follow-up question, two-part question. A, how long have you been practicing law? And B, given, you know, I know it's been working for, of course, you know, a couple of years here. How has the dynamic shifted of clients demanding that you, demanding previously that you would be there in person for them, um, you know, uh, or pitching them or presenting or whatever it might be versus nowadays where it's completely fine to do everything via Zoom telephone call? You know, it depends. Obviously, the demographics overall and the trends overall have shifted. Uh, for me, it, it, I think overall, it still depends a lot on your industry and the demographics of your clients. Um, you know, I'll, I'll take this opportunity to give a little background on myself, if, if that's okay. Yes, please. I, I finished law school in um, 2009 in the middle of the Great Recession. Uh, so, you know, I, none of the big firms were hiring. There was a kind of a nationwide hiring freeze uh, because they were all hemorrhaging so much cash. And what ended up happening for many people in, in my generation is they either fell out of law practice altogether and went to, you know, consulting or tax planning or all sorts of other stuff. Um, or the ones like me that did stay and really, really, you know, had a tough row where we just, I was in and out of various boutique law firms, eventually launched my own thing of, you know, five lawyers that I ran for about five years and, you know, always scratching our heads and asking ourselves, how, what edge do we have against these much larger firms that are better capitalized, have whole brands and marketing departments? Where can I get in? What piece of the market can I dominate? And the answer was, um, you know, as a smaller firm, I was better equipped to, manage, to handle high risk transactions. So things that bigger firms were afraid to get into, you know, esports, DFS, cannabis, tech startups, uh, that sort of thing at the time was all kind of considered fringe activity and, and large firms either didn't know how to make that profitable or their malpractice insurance wouldn't allow them to dabble into such dangerous shark filled waters. Um, they would potentially lose their coverage, which they just can't afford to do on their model. Um, so I kind of became a master of of these alternative spaces, we just spend so much time, you know, watching this industry grow uh, from from the beginning. So because I kind of voluntarily chose to specialize in these alternative fields very early on, then my clients tended to demographically tend to shade younger, tend to be kind of uh, tech forward, uh, tend to be very comfortable with moderate to higher levels of risk, and are unattached to traditional norms of the office place. So for me. For my specialty, you know, type of clients, no one ever cared um, where I was. The most important thing, frankly, about physical location was being able to, you know, go grab a beer after work or whatever face to face and, and build bonds of friendship and trust. But that doesn't really require a full time presence, you know, as long as you're willing to make the effort to get out there again, using Zen Sports as an example, you and I see each other uh, every other month, it seems. Uh, and we're, we're very, you know, we're close friends, uh, despite the distance, because I am always willing to make the effort and get on a plane and go see you because I love hanging out with you guys. Uh, so right. for my type of clients, it hasn't really mattered. And I'm seeing that trend even uh, with more traditional clients. I think there's an ever greater tendency to go in that direction just because you can't retain talent and you can't maintain the counterparties that you want to maintain if you're not willing to be flexible and adapt to the needs and preferences of the younger generations of the millennials 
and the Zs that are commanding uh, this kind of a workspace. Right. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, obviously, Zen sports, such as, you know, a lot of areas that are, quote unquote, classified as high risk, like uh, sports betting, like cryptocurrencies, like, you know, esports, although it's not really high risk, it's just fringe um, or newer. Um, but I think it's really great that you really carved out a special area in that. I think those areas are I, I kind of lump them all into vice, right, vice tech. And I think those areas, vice tech is very underserved. Um, you know, cannabis uh, and others as well, uh, because people just either they have personal hangups on some of them, or like you said before, from a business standpoint, they're concerned about the, you know, the liability and the risk that comes with that. But that's actually where the opportunity is going to be going forward. I mean, regular, you know, just general corporate counsel, kind of a dime a dozen a little bit out there. But if you can really carve out a specialty, you know, in that area, it's huge. And, and same thing is on the VC side, right? You know, the VCs that are that are absolutely crushing it right now that are getting the best deal flow are those that either produce amazing content or they focus on areas that other investors are not, um, et cetera. You just can't do whatever everyone else is doing. It's certainly easier, um, by far and away easier, but, you know, it's it's a simple risk reward calculation. The things that are easier are going to have less reward at the end of the day because there's less risk. If there's things that are high risk, they should have higher reward. So um, that's awesome that you've, you know, been able to, you know, I don't say figure that out because I think anybody can figure it out, but you've, you've been willing to like take the plunge into that and actually do that kind of work. Yeah. And it's also, you know, what's your value proposition? It's now, I'm so fortunate to be a Bailey and Glasser now because we're extraordinarily well capitalized. If you could, I'm going to put in a quick plug uh, from, for my firm, you know, we have a powerhouse litigation side that's done very no good number of notable, you know, big ticket cases like uh, Dieselgate, um, you know, the Volkswagen diesel emission scandal that settled for, you know, I don't know, $60 million or whatever it was. Uh, we had another case last month that's uh, for $32 million, uh, and so on. And so the firm is just well capitalized enough so that we don't worry month to month quarter to quarter, right? And I have free license from my seniors at the firm to build long-term relationships and really focus not on what's going to be profitable this quarter or next quarter, but, you know, what can I do to create value over the long-term, over the life of my career and, and really build a book and build relationships that are going to last kind of generationally, um, if you will. And, and so that gives me the freedom to really go deep and, and, and really deeply embrace uh, my clients kind of business plan and, and everything that they've going on, like we discussed, not just narrowly focus on the transactional documents that they need uh, me to prepare uh, this week. And that's when it really becomes fun. And I think it goes to what you were saying. I think an extension of that is for, for legal representation is that the, the traditional notion of like, you just call your lawyer when you need a one, a certain contract, that's kind of going out the window uh, in, in my view, I find myself more and more taking on a general counsel role where I have a comprehensive view of the client's business and I get called, again, using us as an example, not just for XYZ task, but to talk kind of big picture strategy stuff and to manage legal issues that come up overall, but you know, in a way where you can't wait for there to be an actual problem or a specific contract to be drafted where you kind of need to have comprehensive counsel um, overall, so that your strategy writ large uh, for managing those kinds of risks uh, makes sense. In other words, you'd look for counsel, not legal advice about a particular narrow issue, uh, which means I have to be educated about the business, about the space, about your company um, specifically, and kind of step into like my 
favorite way to have that relationship is where I feel like I'm kind of an extension of the C-suite. And, and that's, that's when it's really fun. And I think that's a trend in the legal industry that you're going to see more and more where people, the companies are ex expect their lawyers uh, to be more involved in their day-to-day -day business and to be more fluent uh, with every aspect of what's going on in the office. Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really great point. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that can be frustrating uh, with working with certain, you know, uh, maybe traditional or old school law firms is, you know, does feel and appear very transactional, um, you know, at, at times, um, or maybe even majority of the time. Um, and that it, it's, it's, I guess, okay, you know, if, if the work gets done, but maybe it's not as enjoyable experience, uh, the bedside manner is not as, uh, you know, favorable or as, as good. Um, and so I think, you know, you know, bringing more human touch, you know, more, you know, thoroughly, uh, more thoroughly understanding, you know, their businesses um, is, is, and just, you know, being able to provide our service that, that way is, I think, uh, critical, uh, you know, in, in today's, you know, world, plus you can get it done faster, right? If you're not having to always go back and try and re-understand everything they're trying to do, which makes things get done faster. And it's, that's always another kind of pain point in the legal space, right? Things take a while, but if you understand the business literally, then it doesn't have to take as long. Um, so that's, that's awesome. Okay. So given all that, um, you know, which, uh, either you can pick the industry or you can maybe pick a particular case and obviously you can't give any names away or anything, but is there anything in particular that you found to be, you know, the most interesting thing you've worked on in the last couple of years? Um, you know, uh, I'll let you kind of free form or, or, uh, you know, just kind of, um, you know, uh, you know, add lib this and, and talk based on what you, uh, you know, feel, and it can be, again, a case, an industry, is there anything in particular that you've found to be really interesting that you've worked on in the last couple of years? Yes, yeah, sure. I will, that's a wonderful, broad question. I'll give you a couple examples, but I think the first one that comes to mind is, um, I'll, I'll say two things. One is the skill-based exemption, right, which gave birth to, like, DFS and esports and we can mm -hmm. talk about this for days, but uh, let's see, where do we start? Uh, the question is, is, is DFS, you know, gam prohibited by the gambling prohibition under the U.S. and uh, state law of, of 35 states or whatever it is now? Right. And it, the, the ultimately, like, from le legally speaking, it comes down to, is it skill-based or not? And that even though there's a couple of federal statutes, they all end up pointing to state law to determine, state law determines what level of skill is required for it not to be gambling. And that is a marvelous philosophical quandary. You know, for example, uh, oftentimes it, it even has an element of time. If you study poker, you know, 10 hands uh, is not enough for you to be able to determine what, you know, what is the skill of the players at the table. But if you watch, let's say 10,000, you know, you will definitely be able to discern over time who is the more skilled player of the bunch. And you can always see, you know, broadly speaking, the same uh, dozen guys end up in the finals in the World Series of Poker, mm -hmm. kind of conclusively demonstrating that that is a skill-based game. But the level of skill that's present varies, you know, depending on the game and, and, and varies based on the way the state law is written in each state. And that was one of my first really fun assignments is a client, I mean, it's probably 2011, 2012, a client had a peer-to-peer -peer gaming application that allowed you to challenge a, one of your friends, and I think 
we did NHL, NBA, whatever, the video games, and you could message anyone else that was on the app and said, hey, Mark, you know, you suck at NBA. I challenge you to let's play right now. I'll be this team. You be that team. Let's put 50 bucks on it. And the application would kind of put that transaction together and you would play the game and the app would basically transfer the money to the winning party. And then, the, you know, the million dollar question was, is that skill based or is it illegal gambling? And <laughs> I think the first time I wrote it, it was a 10 pager. And then, you know, the, uh, it was actually the bank's counsel that I'm talking to because the, the person who wants to know is the bank, because if this is illegal gambling, then they could, you know, they would be breaking, they have a federal charter, they could lose their charter because they'd be breaking federal law by facilitating the gambling through their banking system um, and they could even face a criminal uh, RICO a racketeering charge uh, for engaging in organized crime. So it's a very important question. First time I wrote it was 10, 10 pages and then the bank's counsel called me and said, no, 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 here's what we need. And I said, oh, well, that's more complicated. And then I think I pulled the double all-nighter and it ended up being 50 pages, right? Mm -hmm. And then this same kind of question comes up time and again with, with these DFS uh, spin-offs that, that are mimicking what FanDuel and DraftKings does. And we have to kind of take a look each time and figure out if there is sufficient skill there uh, so to, to defend that opinion, right? And then sometimes they'll even, when it gets really interesting is they'll bring us in earlier now that we have a, a name in this space and talk to us step-by-step step as they're developing the app, right? So before the thing is even, I, I don't know all the, the product lingo about what the scrum or whatnot, but kind of in the middle of all that, they'll, they'll bring me into the conversation and we talk about how they can tweak the application in order to increase the level of skill that's required mm -hmm. such that it will fly clear of, of the gaming prohibitions in let's say 35 states and, and under federal law. So that's, right. okay. that's how we talked earlier. That's really fun when I get to come in kind of almost in the, at the C-suite level and help design their product to ensure it's compliant before that thing's even been born. That's yeah, that's interesting. And, and, you know, definitely on the skill-based side of things, this is definitely something for me that I've always taken an issue with at the, on the legal side of, you know, for be perfectly honest, I believe sports betting, traditional sports betting, you know, betting on over-unders, uh, point spreads, uh, prop bets, it's skill-based. I mean, it, it, you can just look at the fact that casinos ban or sports books ban sharps all the time. Um, and the reality is, is you absolutely, if you do enough research, have enough data at your fingertips, um, you know, make it your full-time profession, they're absolutely, it's skill-based. Now, the problem though is, and I've talked about this on other podcasts with uh, other folks within the gaming industry, the issue is, is that traditional sports betting in the truest, most traditional sense, unfortunately has its roots tied to, you know, the mob days, right? Back in the 50s and 60s, which is how the freaking wire act came about. Um, and I mean, that's, and that's another one that I just, you know, I've, I've made my thoughts on that pretty clear um, at, at, at several times that I think the wire act is on its last legs. It needs to be thrown out, uh, you know, the window. It's, it's absolutely, you know, ridiculous that, you know, states can legalize it, but that the federal government can't recognize it. Um, it just really quite frankly makes no sense. And I, you know, this obviously gets a little political, but, you know, we're based, you know, we're, we have a system based on federalism and I get that. But at what, I mean, what if our airplanes were, you know, based on uh, what states did, uh, you know, and, and so on and so forth, right? It would just be chaos. 
Um, and that's what you get, unfortunately, with gaming in every state now is coming up with their own rules for how sports betting can be done. And again, I, I don't want to take the uniqueness away of each state, um, but there needs to be some federal you know, standardization of some of this, too. And, and also some recognition that traditional sports betting is uh, absolutely skill based, just like, you know, playing in a, a bowling tournament or a pool tournament or DFS. I mean, there's a special carve out exemption for DFS for crying out loud. So what are your thoughts on all of that? Like where sports betting has been from a legal perspective? I mean, it's okay if you're not like super deep in the wire act, but maybe if you just kind of have some high level thoughts around like the history of sports betting laws and kind of maybe where that's going, I would love to get your, you know, pick your brain on that. Sure. Uh, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, I'm on, you know, I'm on your team, uh, frankly, is, uh, I, I, I don't know, I just turned 40 uh, last month, and I still feel like I'm 20. And I don't get it. I don't understand this notion. I didn't, I would even quibble with you about calling them the, the vice tech, right? Right. In the grand scheme of the, because I think what we're grappling with is our nation's history of just having a very strong puritanical roots, right? There's still states where you can't buy alcohol on Sunday at certain times. And, and I guess what was the original, you know, you look at these statutes and this comprehensive scheme to limit or prohibit gambling activity. What is this based in the old time notion that, you know, the, the father figure, the breadwinner is gonna go down to the saloon and waste away all of his wages uh, instead of feeding his kids. Uh, is that the philosophy where this is coming from? Because that, frankly, is way antiquated. And I'm not a social scientist by any stretch, but it seems to me like gaming is just one of the uh, least of the vices that we need to worry about. You know, in the midst of the opioid crisis mm -hmm. and pill popping and all of the horrible addictions that we've seen kind of resurge in the midst of the COVID related lockdowns, you know, do we really think that losing 50 bucks? on a game online is going to ruin people's lives. I don't know um, what everything you described, I agree with uh, philosophically. And it reminds me of the slow but steady shifting of the ties that we saw in the cannabis space, right? So what not long ago, 15, 20 years ago, uh, cannabis was illegal in 50 states and, and, you know, getting caught with it a few times could land you in jail for an extended period of time. Uh, now, I don't know what the latest is, 35 states allow medical and, and recreational uh, to some degree. And what you tend to see uh, politically as each one state after another continues to make legislative changes, even in the faces of federal prohibition, uh, is that the, I hate to point fingers, but it seems like the more conservative side is constantly objecting to the, the vice or the sin of it. I, I have no idea how you can argue that cannabis is more dangerous than, than alcohol because uh, the most dangerous thing you're going to do on cannabis is sit on the couch and play video games. <laughs> I've never heard of someone getting stoned and starting a fight or shooting somebody, you know, <laughs> but uh, whereas alcohol makes you make all sorts of bad decisions and think you're invincible while you're doing them. Um, but anyway, you know, the debate tended to shift as, you know, these conservative vocal opponents and critics started to see the outrageous tax revenue that their neighboring states were getting by making this stuff legal, uh, they start, slowly started to shift away from these puritanical arguments and shift to a more, you know, uh, an argument that's very well received among conservative communities, which is, you know, fiscal responsibility and keeping the state budget 
balanced. Uh, if to give an example, Colorado had something in its constitution that said, if we ever have X amount of a surplus, then we have to give money back to the citizens. And no one ever thought they would ever come near that kind of a budget surplus until mm -hmm. they legalized cannabis, at which point they blew the cap off of it. And they had a legal obligation to disperse money to every citizen in Colorado. So of course they quickly turned around and passed a statute saying, just kidding, except for cannabis tax, that doesn't count. <laughs> so, you know, it's like- Close that loophole pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> So is it, the question is, if you want to take, you know, yes, all right, does cannabis have issues? Sure. I've definitely seen plenty of people that kind of took themselves out of the productive uh, workforce. Uh, was it because of cannabis or was it because of their personality? Uh, I don't know. Again, not a social scientist, not a physician, not a psychiatrist. Don't ask me. I can just make common sense observations. Uh, but what I can tell you for sure is that if you legalize it, what tends to happen is you you take this economy out of the shadows, yep. you reduce the crime that's associated with it, and 100%. you dramatically increase the tax revenue, right? So whatever uh, problems these quote-unquote vices may create in society, all of a sudden you have a huge budget to provide support services uh, to the people that are affected, and I would argue a, a great surplus as well to do all sorts of other wonderful things um, for your state and your country. So given the state of, of the union, I don't see a compelling argument for continuing to have restrictive legislation limiting and, and banning, you know, gaming, whether it's sports, esports, or, right. or, you know, anything else. I think the trend we're going to continue to see is a, a gradual but steady loosening um, of those regulations, which isn't necessarily great for startups. Uh, folks in that space, which I'm sure we'll want to discuss is, you know, as, as difficult as it is to get these licenses, and I don't know if you want to talk about anything about Zen Sports right now, Mark, but as difficult as it is to get these licenses, are they good for, for the founders, for the tech startups that are in the space? Because now if you do manage to get when you have this giant moat around yourself, I guess legality and licensing are two separate issues, but they do go hand in hand. Anyway, I'll stop there. I'm just rambling. Yeah. I hope that answered your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I've said this numerous times before, whether it be on social media or uh, I believe some podcasts that, um, well, several things. One is, you know, millennials, Gen Y, Gen Z, they don't want to be told what to do with their money. I mean, this is the area era of empowerment. Um, these generations want to be able to do with their money what they want. They don't want Big Brother telling them, yes or no, you can do this or you can't do that. Uh, if you just look at Robinhood, I mean, they're probably the best example of that. You know, they want free trading or dirt cheap trading. They want to be able to do it from their phone. They want to do it with a few taps of a button. They want to be able to get a margin account. They want to be able to trade crypto. Uh, Coinbase, again, another great example of it. They don't want to be told what to do. And that's why. If you just look at, you know, since PASCA was overturned in May of 2018, we went from one state to now 28 states or so that have legalized sports betting because you see the shift in attitude from, uh, you know, lawmakers. Of course, they see budget um, dollar sign, you know, surpluses there, but also the lawmakers are, are also starting to be of the age in those generation categories I just mentioned. Uh, and so they're, they're wanting to see this because they think it's ridiculous as well, too. And then, you know, to take that a little step further, I've also talked about this before, but, you know, the whole you know, idea that you can tell people what to do and, and restrict and outlaw it and then you keep people from doing it is just nonsense. You know, people have been gambling and betting uh, since the beginning of time. They're going to do it whether you make it legal or not. <clears throat> when you make it legal, you bring it above ground. You get rid of the illegal activity like you just mentioned. You get rid of the, 
you know, the unfair games or gaming practices that you get, if it were illegal, um, you standardize it, you bring it above ground, you monitor it, you manage it for compliance and you make it a, a legitimate industry and, uh, and you bring and you legitimize it. And so that people can feel confident that if they place a wager, it's a fair game. They're going to get paid if they win. Uh, there's help for them if they feel like they have a problem um, and so forth. And so, you know, it's definitely a shift from obviously 60 years ago from when the Wire Act first came about. Um, but I think it's even just a huge shift in the last three and a half years since since PASPA was repealed and, you know, shift in the last five, seven years in general with with how people look at how they should be able to do things with their money. Um, on, the, on the Zen Sports licensing or on the gaming licensing side for Zen Sports or other companies. So, it's one of those things where I fully support companies having to get licensed. I, I think that is absolutely positively the right uh, approach. Um, but it goes back to my point a few minutes ago, I wish there was more of a standardization of the process uh, of it. Um, and so I think that that kind of fits both realms where, uh, yes, I want us to do it because, you know, I don't want just any startup, two guys in a garage to be able to offer a gambling product that is not been thoroughly vetted out like ours has been. Um, you know, we, we deserve that license, for example, with Zen Sports in Nevada, because we have a vetted out product team, company, et cetera. At the same time, some standardization from state to state would be nice so that you're not having to like almost kind of like start the process over or, you know, kind of fumble around with a different process in each state. Um, so I think, I think a mix of both or, or kind of split that down the middle is the right approach. So if you are truly qualified and you are truly have a great product and you do have a team that's legitimate and and uh, company and all that good stuff, you should have a, a path to getting licensed, but it shouldn't be overnight, um, but it shouldn't also be completely complicated where, you know, it takes, I don't know, you know, two years or something. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a healthy balance between the two. Um, so yeah, I think it's just super interesting how far we've come in just the last few years with cannabis and with uh, sports betting, um, you know, type of, uh, you know, legalization and how quickly it's moving and, uh, it's, it's great. I mean, I, you know, I, I fully support it. Obviously I'm pretty libertarian. So I mean, that from that perspective, uh, comes out in, in that, but, uh, definitely, uh, glad to see that. So then I kind of ask, you know, I, I've always found this to be, um, something, you know, I've always wanted to ask attorneys, uh, you know, and this is, I think another, you know, possible good advice that you can give to, uh, potential clients or even just, we have a lot of, you know, startup founders and entrepreneurs who listen to the, this pod, you know, what can, founders, entrepreneurs, C-level executives um, that are in, especially a startup and fast-growing startup, do to better put them in position um, to work with potential legal teams and also not to get themselves into hot water, you know, if they go astray because they weren't doing X, Y, and Z. Yeah, 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 sure. Let me give a two-second standard disclaimer first. Obviously, I'm not giving anybody legal advice. If you want legal advice, you got to call me and uh, or anyone, you know, someone at Bailey Glasser and uh, sign a retainer agreement and formally form that attorney-client relationship. Otherwise, we're just talking. Um, we're just chatting here on this podcast. I think that the critical thing for startup founders, especially when they're raising money, which they all seem to be, is to get their counsel involved sooner rather than later. And I understand there's a natural trepidation because of the expense. Um, but you know, frankly, if you're serious, then you want to get counsel involved early. And I can always tell the difference. I'll know within 10 minutes of talking to someone if they're, they're a first-time founder or not, because that's the biggest difference is that first-time founders tend to not recognize the value or the importance of legal. 
whereas second or third time or fourth time founders and so on have typically have been burned at least once and recognize that the cost is absolutely worth it because it's just cheap insurance. The cost of not having good counsel early on far exceed, uh, you know, the, the benefits far exceed the costs. And, and yeah, I would say that there's always a way if you're talking to the right firm, and obviously I'm going to plug uh, Bailey Glasser as someone who's good at this, uh, but there are others out there as well. I don't mean to just say it's us, but you should find someone that has enough experience with startups so that they can understand where you are and they can, they can identify your most critical needs and take care of those on a budget that suits you. You know, for example, uh, for me, um, again, because I have the luxury of being at a, at a well-capitalized firm, I, I'm allowed to have what's called, what I call, you know, lovingly call my, my farm team, you know, three to six startups, um, you know, each year or so, a little cohort, if you will, that are undercapitalized, but promising because they have good tech or a good team or both, and who I've made the subjective decision to advocate for, you know, with my seniors at the firm and say, hey, these guys don't have a ton of money. But I say we, we give them the time of day and look out for them uh, as best we can on their budget, which may be close to zero. And, you know, hopefully they'll, once they, once, if and when they make it, they'll not only pay us back for everything we did, but they'll be a client for life and they'll pay our rack rate, you know, moving forward once, once they're capitalized. And 50% of those startups will disappear. 50% will become clients for life is, is the, the idea, depending on how good you are at picking them. Um, and, and then, you know, in that way, it's, it's worked out pretty well uh, so far. And it's really fun uh, for both sides. So we're kind of like a legal version of an incubator, if you will. So I would really encourage people not to assume uh, that everyone can do this, but go find a firm that has some, um, you know, system like that in place so that they have a way to, you know, conscientiously care for uh, a, a burgeoning um, startup and do that uh, sooner rather than later, because especially with the fundraising, oh, even with the safes and whatever, it's so easy uh, to get yourself into trouble. And it's really not something where you can carbon copy someone else's raise and then put your name on the top. That's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say that it's, it's interesting because, you know, I see a lot of, uh, you know, other entrepreneurs and founders chatting online uh, or on social media or whatever it might be. And definitely legal um, is almost always one of the areas that gets their corners cut, especially in the early days, like you were just mentioning, when they don't have as much money. Uh, and the number one advice whenever an entrepreneur lets me know that they're starting a company and what should they do, um, the very, very first thing I say is incorporate and get all the founder, co-founder agreements ironed out. Uh, because the last thing you want is somebody coming back later and saying, no, you actually promised me 30%, um, not 15% or whatever it might be. Oh, yeah. And you've seen the countless examples like with Snapchat and Facebook, you know, they didn't do that in earlier days. And of course then boom, you've got a big price to pay for that later on uh, when somebody comes back and claims it, it's just, it's brutal. Um, yeah. And then of course, along the way too, right. As you're doing, you know, investing rounds and bringing on employees and stock options and stuff like that. It's just, it's really I don't understand. I get that they want to save, you know, whatever that initial, um, you know, package or cost is to get that stuff up and running. But it's like they just don't understand how much headache it's going to save them later on. 
Right. We call that getting Winkelvost right after the Winkelvost right. twins yeah. at, at FaceTime. Snap had the same thing with uh, whatever his name is, the third co-founder that said he was owed a third of the company. And and guess what? What people don't realize, they say, oh, I can fight it out with them and you know win my day in court if they ever do that. Well, that's not as easy as you think. And I'll, t- I'll tell you what, because in the U.S., you have the Securities Act of, of 33 and the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 following a couple of meltdowns in the stock market around those times based on fraud. And what they do is they create a super elevated disclosure requirements in favor of your investors. And guess what, folks? If, if someone puts, even if there's sweat equity in your company, depending on the circumstances surrounding that sweat equity, especially if they leave, uh, they could become, they could step into that protected status of an investor under the 34 Act. And I'll read you the rule because I got this thing memorized because it's come up so many times. Uh, it's unlawful to make a material misrepresentation or omission in connection with the purchase or sale of a security, right? And right. that's uh, rule 10b-5. And what happens is all of the chips are stacked in favor of the investor based on the legislative history of that statute. So all I have to show if, I'm, if, if I've got a client that's going after a company that promised him 20%, all I have to show is that my client reasonably believed they were entitled to 20%. And I can show, come up with an email with a you know, sc- scratch on the back of a napkin, uh, a stray cap table that someone thought was a draft, but was circulated, you know, anything like that. And I say, Your Honor, I did, my client did this in reliance of the, of the material representation that was made by the company at the time the investment decision was, was entered into, uh, which my client relied to their detriment, they've been defrauded. And that's sort of the end of the story. And, and that's the federal statute. You have state statutes that mimic that. And the state statutes tend to hit you with uh, attorney's fees and oftentimes with treble damages, which means triple uh, the amount lost. So you really, even if you think you did everything 80% right, you don't want to be in a position to defend uh, that claim because nine out of 10 times, all else being equal, you're going to lose. So in Spanish, and, and often, and again, oftentimes it's not even anyone being malicious. It's an honest misunderstanding among people who were friends at the time. In Spanish, we have a saying in business, it's called uh, notas claras forman amistades largas, which means clear notes make for long friendships. And clear notes are not you writing love notes via email. I'm talking about uh, a proper contract for whether it's a purchase and sale agreement, founders agreement, employment agreements, your incorporation docs, everything's got to be buttoned up among the founders on day one, as you said, otherwise you're just asking for trouble. Absolutely. hundred percent. I mean, it's all about, it's all about clarity. Uh, I've definitely heard the saying like tight is right. You know, you want to keep everything super, super tight, super buttoned up. Um, you know, every little tiny detail has got to be spelled out. Otherwise if there's ambiguity, that's what gets taken to court. Right. I mean, I, I mean, basically it's, it's pretty much that is, that is the case. Right. I mean, any, anything yes. that winds up in court almost always did so because of ambiguity or lack of clarity. Yes. And that's why you read, you know, investor contracts uh, that are done by competent counsel and they're just the really good ones. You know, when you're dealing with masterful counsel, because they're in plain English, you can understand every word and they're highly redundant. You're like, it just makes you pull your hair out, right? They say, why do they say the same thing three or four different times? Well, because each one of those is based on someone at that firm, you know, getting burned by not 
being explicitly obvious. And then that gets incorporated to the collective subconscious of the firm and amalgamated. And now you have this mass, this document that's been kind of whittled out over a generation or two that's, in, that's incorporated every single time something went wrong based on a misunderstanding on some supposed ambiguity, right? People find all sorts of ambiguity when there's $20 million on the table. It's amazing how they become incapable of reading even basic English when there's $20 million on the table. Yeah, 100%. So to wrap up here, uh, I have one kind of, I think, pretty cool, you know, question I'd love some insight on. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to a little, I'm going to give you my take before I answer, but I, before I ask for your opinion on it, and maybe it's the same for you. But my question is, is what do aspiring lawyers or those that are not lawyers think that lawyers do all the time that is completely false? And I think the answer is always spend time in court. In fact, if anything, you're probably mostly spending your time in documents all the time to make sure you're not going to court. Um, but what would you say is kind of a misnomer about attorneys that you want to dispel right here and right now for everybody else? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, think for two seconds. Yes, I agree with you. Uh, the notion that you're going to spend half your time like Tom Cruise and a few good men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of taking the time, taking, cutting. You can't the handle the truth, Carlos. <laughs> when I was a kid, I would take, tear your throat off and tell your head off and shit down your neck. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> I was threatened at a bar in town recently. That's something to that effect. Anyway, well, that's a different story. Uh, yes, no, you don't stand up in court and have this magnificent one-liner. First of all, you're going to spend... You know, especially for me, because I'm a corporate guy, I, I do hop on litigations from time to time when it's in my area of expertise. Um, but you, regardless of where you are, the time you spend in court, unless you're a public defender or a you know, state prosecutor, the time you spend in court is going to be less than 5% of your time. And you don't ever, um, you almost never have those kind of Hollywood moments where the whole case turns on a one-liner or one particular zinger. Although I have seen that once or twice, I have some seen some exciting exchanges in court. At the end of the day, they rarely change the outcome. They're just fun. What you end up doing 90% of the time is uh, certainly the first 10 years of career is just, is just grinding. You're just researching and writing and you're revising and you're revising and you're revising. And, and that's kind of the, your training years as a grinder. And then at least in my trajectory, as, a, as I've advanced, I spend more time with clients. I spend more time doing biz dev. I spend more time kind of thinking big picture, kind of taking in a big assignment, a big problem, a big transaction, breaking it down into pieces, assigning it to colleagues, and then project managing all the moving parts and making sure the thing fits together as a whole before it goes out the door um, back to clients. So, so really, you know, lawyering is is the love of, of just constantly learning, constantly improving your craft. That's why they call it practicing law. And that's why don't, we don't really retire. We just die because uh, <laughs> you just love the game so much. You keep doing it forever. And, and uh, you know, what would I do if I stopped working? I'd go crazy. No way. Um, and yeah, and you're just you're just constantly um, kind of refining uh, your craft so that you are uh uh, kind of the uh, kind of the the creme de la creme of the samurai to the point where you're so well trained in all these different aspects of, of the transactional world that you can kind of take on uh, anyone in in your uh, specific industry. But it's never just one 
zinger in court. It's it's you know it's countless hours spent in court making the briefs perfect and researching the law, or if it's on the transactional side, thinking through the deal and negotiating, hammering down every detail so that it's bulletproof and perfect and everyone knows what they're getting and they're happy with they with what they get and it's what they agreed to. So so that love of the detail is really the driving force of your career, much less, much less, uh, much more so than any, you know, uh, flashy Hollywood moment that you may have seen on television. Yeah, hundred percent. Well, Carlos, this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, just super insightful, super impactful. I'm going to make sure every entrepreneur founder in my network, uh, gets this podcast. I mean, every piece of advice that you gave is hundred percent spot on. Uh, so how can people find you and Bailey Glasser online if they want amazing legal representation? Sure. Uh, baileyglasser.com. Uh, C. Duque. My last name is Duque. D is in Delta. U-Q-U-E at baileyglasser.com or uh, give me a call. 317-270-3353. I look forward to hearing from everyone. We're also going to be at the uh, ESTA. That's I think the Esports Trade Association uh, conference in Chicago, September 12th to the 15th. So check them out. I think it's I'm not going to guess at their website, but if you Google uh, ESTA, you should be able to find them and it's going to be really exciting. Look forward to seeing everyone there. Amazing. And just for all the listeners out there, uh, Bailey Glasser is one of our uh, uh, legal counsels uh, that we use and they're fantastic. Carlos is amazing. Um, the fact that I can pick up the call, phone and call or text you like pretty much anytime day or night is just one of the things I love about you. So I really, I really appreciate that, that you are, you know, so responsive and great to work with. And uh, I know others out there uh, will find you to be the same. So we'll get this, uh, we'll get this in front of a lot of people that I know could uh, to use some great legal counsel. And um, yeah, with that, uh, appreciate you coming on the show, Carlos, and uh, everyone else out there in startup and tech and vice land. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Mark. Bye, Bye Carlos. Bye.